Have you heard expressions like, nice guys finish last? Or how about, do unto others before they do unto you? Have you heard such expressions as that? I'm sure you probably have. I'm convinced that expressions like that were probably originated with people who have in mind achieving certain worldly goods. If if you uh, worldly goals, probably I should say, if you want to get ahead, if you want to claw your way to the top in the business world, if you want to succeed by worldly estimation, if you want to succeed, you should follow that kind of guidance, I suppose. And I'm sure that that's where it originated with. But of course, pursuing that sort of a philosophy will not bring true happiness. And the reason why we know that it won't bring true happiness is because it is completely contrary to the principles that God designed for man's real happiness and fulfillment. Our study uh, over the last few weeks and as we continue this morning it comes from the introductory statements of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 where Gage read for us just a few moments ago. The very first verses of that famous Sermon on the Mount are what we call the Beatitudes. We explained in our initial lesson that the reason they're called the Beatitudes is from a Greek, or a Latin word rather, a Latin word, beatus, which means blessed. And so these are statements of blessedness or true happiness. To be blessed, to be happy, to be well favored, you need to do these kinds of things. Jesus described in these introductory verses of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. And so we want to continue that study this morning, and our very simple question to you this morning is, are you a meek person? Are you meek? And of course, this comes from verse number three, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I don't think that's wrong. I think that should be verse five. (laughs) I think the chart's wrong. Uh, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What about that? We want to talk about meekness this morning. Make sure we have a good handle on what it means and try to apply it in our daily lives as we serve God in order to attain to real blessedness, happiness, to be well-favored. We need to be meek. We stop here for just a minute to add words of welcome to those that Yancey already expressed uh, in, in his introductory remarks. We're glad for your presence here today. We appreciate you very much. As we said during the Bible class hour, as a the weather has not been favorable this weekend, uh, but we do have a, still a great privilege to come together in this comfortable place to worship God, and we're glad that you see this as an important thing to do on the Lord's Day. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being a part of this, for the encouragement that you give us by your participation this morning. We pray that all will be edified and God will be glorified as we worship Him today. We have visitors. We're always grateful for visitors. Please come again every time you have a chance to be here. And so let's talk about meekness. And we need to be asking ourselves. Jesus said it was a blessed thing to be meek. Are we meek? The first thing that we have to do is make sure that we understand the meaning of meekness. If you were to ask a man on the street today, what does it mean to be meek? I think you would hear him express synonyms along this line. He would say to be meek is to be weak, uh, to be cowardly to be spineless, to be lacking in courage, to be shy. I think all of those kind of things would be in people's ideas of what the word meek means, but it absolutely 
is not the meaning uh, of the word as we read it in Scripture. Uh, it does not mean weak or cowardly or shy. It actually conveys the idea of a disciplined sort of strength. Strength under control, we often say, when we're talking about biblical meekness. I want to read a couple of quotes from a couple of well-known sources. First of all, Vine says, Meekness, as commonly used, suggests weakness, but the Bible word does not. Nevertheless, it is difficult to find a rendering less open to objection than the English word meekness. Gentleness has been suggested, but it is appropriate to one's actions, whereas meekness describes a condition of mind and heart. It is the fruit of inward strength. It is the temper of spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. Described negatively, meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. It is not occupied with self at all. That's a little longer description, but I think Vine has a handle on it, but I actually like this one better. William Barclay said that this word is used of animals which have been tamed and which have learned to accept discipline and control. A horse obedient to the reins, a dog trained to obey the word of command. I can picture that better, can't you? And so you see this powerful draft horse. I mean, he's a monster. And he's full of strength, but with a simple tug on the reins, his master can get him to move and do what he wills him to do. He's strong, but he's under control. And that's the picture that we want to have in mind when we talk about biblical meekness. Now, Probably the best way to illustrate this is to look at some specific examples of individuals in the Bible who were meek. And I'm sure you're probably ahead of me on this, but one that immediately comes to mind is Moses. Moses was identified as a meek individual. In fact, in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it says the man Moses was very meek above all the men which upon the face of the earth. I mean, you talk about meekness. He excelled all who were living at that time. He was a very meek man. Okay, you got that description of him. But you also have a mental picture of him too, don't you? You, have, you, you see that he's identified as meek, but in your mind's eye, would you, would you picture Moses as a spineless or cowardly individual? Absolutely not, of course. A uh, couple of instances from his life as he led the children of Israel. We remember after he had confronted Pharaoh, powerful Pharaoh in Egypt, and finally Pharaoh sent the children of Israel away, but almost immediately changed his mind and was on their heels chasing them as they came to the Red Sea. Here's the Red Sea. Uh, looks like a, uh, a, an impassable obstacle. Pharaoh's army is right behind him. The Red Sea's right in front of them. What in the world are they going to do? Here's Moses, a tower of strength. He says to the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. So here's Moses with great courage. In fact, he is so strong in this event that he is able to inspire a weak and murmuring whole nation of people to move forward and to cross the Red Sea. Moses was a great leader of men. He was a very courageous individual. That would not be what most people have in mind when they think of a meek person, sort of a milk toast sort of a guy. No, that wasn't Moses at all. 
perhaps the best picture of Moses' strength is seen in Exodus 32. Remember, he had been up on Mount Sinai for an extended number of days as he, as the Lord was delivering the law to him. Uh, and as he's coming down, there's the noise. In fact, Joshua, who had been part of the way with him, said there must be the noise of battle in the camp. And Moses said, I don't think that's it at all. They came on and, of course, they saw the children of Israel, children of Israel worshiping the golden calf that they had erected. And it says in Exodus 32, verse 19, came to pass as soon as he came nigh into the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and break them beneath the mount. And he took the calf which they had made and burned it in the fire and ground it to powder and strode it on the water and made children, the children of Israel drink of it. This is a weak milk toast kind of guy. No, not at all. He's strong. He, he's, he's disciplined in his strength. By the way, someone said, well, maybe was, his, was, his, was he out of control in this episode? Was he, was, was he out of control when he threw the tablets of stone down that were engraved by God's own finger with the Ten Commandments? Was he out of control when he was so angry that he ground the golden calf up into powder and made them? No. I don't think he was out of control. Uh, God never rebuked him for inappropriate actions in regards to that, did he? So he was a strong man. And yet he was, had his strength disciplined. He was under control. Moses is a good example. And we keep remembering that statement. He was a very meek man. So he's a very meek man. And you get the picture of him and the way he acted, the things that he did in response to the will of God. But of course, the ultimate example in all things is Jesus Christ himself. I don't care what you have under consideration. If you want the perfect, ideal example of a, an important characteristic, you look to Jesus, obviously. He's the, the ultimate example. And in regards to meekness, Jesus was that. In Matthew chapter 11, you remember these familiar verses, come unto me, verse 28 beginning, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For notice, I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said, I am meek and lowly in heart. The apostle Paul confirmed this in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1, Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And so Jesus was meek. Uh, just like we saw with Moses, the, the Scriptures identify Moses as being meek. Certainly the Scriptures identify Jesus as being perfect in regards to this meekness. Now, with that in mind, let's look at a description of Jesus. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist seeth Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus was called the Lamb of God. But in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep not, behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, hath prevailed to open the book to loose the seven seals thereof. In Revelation 5, 5, he's called a Lion. He's called a Lamb. He's called a Lion. You get the idea? He's a strong individual, but he can control that. Strong like a lion, submissive like a lamb. Perfect descriptions of Jesus, both counts. And putting those two things together is what comprises the characteristic of meekness. Jesus was meek above all others. I think we see some examples of that. 
early on in Jesus' preaching work in John chapter 2, he went into the temple and he saw some of the corrupt practices of the money changers that were taking place in the temple. In John 2, beginning verse 13, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables, said to them that sold doves, take these things hence. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Wait a minute. Jesus out of, out of order there? Jesus kind of loses cool? Uh, he, he, he misbehaved there? No. This was perfect conduct, right? Exactly as God would have it. He's strong. He's courageous. And he's disciplined in the exercise of that, even when he's confronting such corrupt practices as those money changers. I tell you, I think maybe the, the extreme example of his strength under control had to do with when he was arrested and the false trial that he experienced and his crucifixion. As Jesus anticipated that in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 32, he went a little further, fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. There's that strength, right? Strength under control, seen as he anticipated uh, his upcoming crucifixion. Maybe the hardest test of all was when he was actually uh, on trial, as he was actually being tortured to death, in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment, cast lots. As he's hanging on the cross, he's able to still desire that those who are committing this horrible atrocity could be forgiven. Strength under control. See it in Moses. You see it in Jesus. That's the picture. Again, I just want to emphasize that the, the, the world and the worldly estimation of this characteristic of meekness is just completely wrong. And so when we hear that word and when we read of it in our scriptures, let's make sure we identify it correctly and connect it with great men such as Moses and, of course, with our Savior, Jesus Christ. All right. So here's the way we've been approaching these studies about the Beatitudes. We want to make sure we understand them, see them illustrated, but then to ask the very important question, how do I develop this attitude? If it is so ultimately important for me to be a meek person, what kind of things will help me to achieve that? I've got a couple of simple observations for you. Uh, the first one is to remember that I can't make it on my own. Uh, in, in human terms, uh, there's uh, a, a, a lot of credit or or significance attached to self-reliance. Uh, sometimes you hear people described as a self-made man. Here, here's a fellow, maybe he started out with almost nothing, and now he's got a lot, and he did it all on his own. He's a self-made man, self-reliant. You know. When it comes to spiritual matters, none of us can be that way. We, we are totally dependent upon the Lord. I can't make it by myself. And so one of the ways I develop meekness is to realize that I'm very much dependent upon God. And therefore, although I need to serve Him with strength, I need to be submissive to His will. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. 
And so keep in mind that I, I, I can't make it on my own. That, that I am dependent upon uh, God for all. Uh, we, we got a little extra here, but we're still talking about this point right here. I can't make it on my own. Paul said in Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Even this, this, the strong apostle Paul could acknowledge that he was dependent upon Christ to accomplish what needed to be done. And then let's talk about trusting God. If I can put my full trust and confidence in God, it will help me toward this goal of developing meekness of spirit. Uh, in First Peter 5, verse 6, beginning, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Uh, if I am able to submit to the will of God, then uh, I'm exercising... Uh, the idea of meekness, uh, the, the, the attitude of a disciple who submits is inherent in the concept of meekness. And the promise is, I will be exalted. I need to trust God. I need to trust His promises. I also need to trust what He said about His justice and punishment of those who do not. I need to trust God. So, remember that I can't make it myself. Trust God. Having those two very simple things in mind, will help us toward the goal of being meek, strong, under control. And then finally, what's the result? The result is, for they shall inherit the earth. This requires a little bit of an explanation. They shall inherit the earth. Inherit the earth. What about that? What does that mean? I'm sure that a, a good many of you have had opportunity in times past to talk to the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses are very evangelistic in spreading their message. Uh, we often say we, we differ with them on tons of doctrinal things, but we do have to admire their commitment to their objectives. They're very diligent in trying to reach others with their message. I, I would be willing to guess that almost everybody here has had Jehovah's Witnesses knock at your door one time or another. Well, if you ever take the time to engage them in discussion, and I think you should, by the way, uh, I'm going to tell you, somebody comes knocking on my door and, and wants to talk about spiritual matters, I'm going to talk to them. One of the problems with Jehovah's Witnesses is that they don't really want to hear what you have to say. They just have what they want to tell you, which, be, which becomes a problem pretty quickly if you try to engage them. But we should try to engage them. And if you ever do engage them, one of the things to talk with them about is their very peculiar doctrine of the 144,000. We've talked about this before, but just to briefly uh, summarize it, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that there will be 144,000 people who will go to heaven. That's it. And when you think about all of the people who've lived throughout the history of mankind, that's not very many people. That's a, a tiny, tiny percentage of people who will go to heaven. But they believe the number is exact and certain. 144,000 will go to heaven. They get that number by a misinterpretation of a couple of statements in the book of Revelation. Revelation, we won't go to that, but the book of Revelation, as you well know, is a highly figurative, symbolic book. They try to make a literal application of something there that's never intended to be literal. But they seize on that 144,000. And then they say, the rest of the rights. That's not very many people. As we said, that's a fairly tiny percentage of those who will do the will of God in this lifetime. So the 144,000 go to heaven. The rest of the righteous are going to 
inherit the earth. That's their very expression. And their view is that God is going to get rid of all everything that's corrupt and bad on planet earth. He's actually going to restore it to its pristine Garden of Eden condition, like it was when Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden. The, the Lord's going to restore the earth to that condition, and the rest of the righteous will inherit the earth. Well, what about that expression, inherit the earth? Is, does it mean what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach? That the earth will never be destroyed and that the righteous will inherit, literally live here on planet earth throughout eternity? Well, that cannot be the right understanding because passages like 2 Peter 3 verse 10 tell us the earth is going to be destroyed. In 2 Peter 3 verse 10, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Notice, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. The earth is going to be burned up. Not going to be anybody inheriting the earth in the sense of living here forever. The Jehovah's Witnesses are just flatly wrong about their notion of most of the righteous, with the exception of 144,000, most of the righteous are going to inherit the earth, are going to live here forever. They're just wrong about that. The earth is going to be destroyed. All of the physical universe is going to be destroyed. So what about this expression then, inherit the earth? Well, what we understand is that inherit the earth was a proverbial expression of the Jews. Remember that the Jews had, for a very long time, dating all the way back to the promises made to Abraham, the Jews had been promised the promised land, that they would inherit this land. It would become their possession. And that promise was passed to them from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of their descendants continued to hold out for that promise, and it was finally fulfilled, of course, as Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land. But that became a proverbial expression, inherit the land. And by the way, this expression, inherit the earth, could as well be translated, inherit the land. And so to the Jews, this was just an expression of good blessings from God, good things coming your way. They had looked forward to this great blessing of inheriting the land of Canaan. And so it became a proverbial expression to them, inherit the land, inherit the earth. And to a Jew, that's what that meant. It, it, it connected with the promises of old. And they used it as a proverbial expression about just good things happening to you. Look, in, here's an example of it. In Psalm 25, verse 12, What man is there that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. His soul shall dwell at ease. His seed shall inherit the earth or inherit the land. This was like a proverbial expression to them. It just means good things will come to you if you do the will of God. Now, is that a, is that a fair is that a fair conclusion? Somebody, oh yeah, that's that just sounds like a cop out to me. So you, you've got a, you've got an issue that you can't explain, so you're trying to cop out with it. No, it's really it is really a fair explanation. It, it's borne out uh, in the way that the phrase is used biblically and extra biblically. You know, we do that too in, in our discussions. Um, for instance, have you ever heard someone say about another person, they would say, he hit pay dirt, or he, he struck the mother load. Well, those would be expressions that come from mining for gold. They might, but the person we're describing might not be mining for gold at all, right? But he, he hit pay dirt, or he, he struck the mother load. 
Uh, or maybe someone else says, his ship came in. And it doesn't have anything to do with boats and water. But his ship came in means that he received a, a big benefit. He got a, he, he got a, 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 a great blessing in one way or another. We use such expressions, don't we? And the Jews did too. And this idea of inheriting the earth or inheriting the land connected with the ancient promise to Abraham. And so that's what inherit the earth means. If, if you will be a meek individual, you'll receive abundant blessings from God. That's what it means. And we really believe that that is true. You'll receive all kinds of blessings if you develop this characteristic of meekness, strength under control. You're going to be blessed now. Your life's going to be better now. If you do, if you do not resist, but rather in strength submit to the will of God, your life is going to be better here and now. Of course, ultimately in eternity you will be blessed if you have meekness. We need to be meek. Are you meek? That's our question coming from the Beatitudes this morning. Are you meek? We need to be. And, and uh, hopefully that's a characteristic that we can all de- work on developing. Like so many of these characteristics, it's never, it's never the uh, situation where you can say, I'm, I'm there. I'm, I'm meek. I got it. I, I can check that one off. All of these are kind of attributes which we can improve and increase. And we can certainly increase more and more in meekness and I'll be striving to do so. Thanks for your good attention to what we've had to say. As we're about to sing a song of invitation, we can connect the idea of meekness to the invitation of the Lord. To be meek, you have to, in your strength, submit. You have to have strength under control. You need to submit to the Lord. Have you done that? Have you obeyed that simple gospel plan of salvation? Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized for the remission of sins. If you have not, we hope that you will, in meekness, submit to the Lord's will for your life. You'll be blessed if you do. If you're a Christian already, but you've not been faithfully serving the Lord, in meekness, come back to Him in repentance and confession and prayer. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing this song. Thank you.